welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Loving Neighbor, was given on February 26, 2017 by Bethany Shea in the series Up, In, Out on Love. Okay, so we are going to be in Luke today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. It's a really familiar passage um, that you guys all probably know, I'm sure. But um, at our town hall meeting that we had a few weeks ago, um, we, it was just obvious that our community has this really deep desire to, um, to grow in our core values of up in and out, of loving God, of loving one another, and of loving our neighbor. Um, and you know, some of the ideas that we came up with on the whiteboard for loving God and loving one another was like, there were so many good ones, but we didn't really get into the loving our neighbor part uh, because we just ran out of time. Um, and I have ideas, and I know our vision team has ideas of how we can love our neighbors really well here in Humboldt. Uh, one of the things that, that we're gonna start doing um, as a community is on the fifth Sunday, we are going to not meet together as a church, but we're gonna be in the community as the church. So we're gonna do um, some sort of service project. And you know, we're still praying about like what kind of group we'd wanna be involved with, or if we'd wanna just bless somebody in our community, or if we wanna work with Betty Chin, or another person like that in the area. So um, be in prayer for that, because uh, the first fifth Friday is the last week in April. And, um, and it would be great to have something that we can kind of do every single time together as a church. Um, another way that we want to learn how to love our neighbors well is just the idea of, of like getting to know our literal neighbors that are around us and uh, who, meet, who, who lives around here and you know, get together, bake cookies together, and then just go around and see like, who are you? What is it that you need? How can this small local church help you? Like, how can we be a part of your lives even more? Um, and so those are just some of the ideas and we want to hear more of your ideas as well as, as we move forward. Um, but that's part of the out spot of, that we're in. So a few weeks ago we looked at, at up with loving God and we looked at the Ten Commandments and how Jesus was a Jewish person who obeyed the law and the prophets, obeyed the Torah, and had a, an abiding relationship with his Father through prayer. And so if we follow Jesus, who follows the Father, then we then also follow the Father. And so following those Ten Commandments and that sort of thing isn't in a legalistic way. It's more for us to... Um, just to be aware of what God is doing in the world. And it's also a way of like getting rid of Egypt, if that makes sense. So I talked a couple weeks ago about how um, God put those laws in place for the, for, for the Israelites after he took them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He put those things in place so, so they would be more in tune to what he wanted them to do instead of what Egypt represented. And then last week we looked at what it meant to love one another. And I talked about how Jason, when he went through that huge bout of anxiety and I had those friends that came around us and supported us, it was their love for us through that really hard season that revealed to me how much God loves me. And that's part of like the relationship with one another is that we get to reveal God's love to each other by being there for each other. So today we're going to look in what it, what it means to love our neighbors. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25. Um, this is a passage that most of us are really familiar with. Um, it's the passage of the Good Samaritan. And even if you've never read this passage, the language is familiar only because, it, you know, if you come across like a, 
an accident on the side of the road and you're like the first responder and you help out, you're considered a good Samaritan. You are protected by a good Samaritan law um, if something happens to that person on your watch. So um, it's very familiar language for most of the people here, I'm sure. I'm going to read it through and then we can talk about it for a minute, just discuss kind of what comes out from that, like what sticks out, and then um, I'm going to do kind of a walk through verse by verse and apply it to our lives. Sound good? All right, let me pray. Jesus, we love you so much, and we are just thrilled that we get to be in your word this morning as a church. We know that you have something for each person here about what it means to love you and learn to accept your love, God. So Jesus, as we get into your word, we just pray that your love opens our hearts, it opens our minds to receive what you have for us today. May we glorify you with everything that we say and do, and may the words that we say today, the words that I say, be, bring glory to your name, God. We love you, we thank you in your name, amen. So we're going to read verse 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he went out to depart, to, he, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So how many of you have read this passage before? And it is, it's super familiar, right? It's like the passage that's busted out, usually at least once a year at most churches. Um, what, what kind of stands out from that passage? What is something that you, I know you've read it before, but anything that, that stood out again for the, fir or for the first time or something that came out again? I didn't realize he was talking to a lawyer. He thought was the first time I realized he was a lawyer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. Totally. Mm. 
Right. Good. Right. Right. Good. Yeah, that's a good observation for sure. Nice. Anything else? Yeah, Paul. One thing I kind of noticed was, um, I mean, we hear that, heard that how Samaritans were not liked at all. Right. And if you look at the end when Jesus asked them who, he, the guy can't even say the Samaritans. Right. There's so much hate there. Says the man who had mercy can you say the word Samaritan. Right. I mean, if we were kind of compared to today, maybe like you know, except the Samaritan, maybe use the, remember the Taliban. Right. Or Al Qaeda. You know, there's so right. much hatred. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. David, how about you? You said you had something. I didn't catch what she was saying there, but um, I think it's pretty insightful that the lawyer, when asked how to inherit eternal life, didn't say, well, obey the Ten Commandments or obey the whole laws. He said, love God, love the neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that's it's so simple. But at the same time, it's well, vast. Well, it's not simple, but it's like, right. it's, it's simpler than Right. Totally. Right. Right. Good. Didn't he also just, I don't know where Jesus said this in, in his book, but repeating back the same thing that Jesus said. You know, someone asked Jesus, you right. know, and he said, love God, love your neighbor. And so he's saying the exact same thing. Right, right. So, and that's, that's a passage in, in Matthew where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers to love. He answers the same answer. Yeah. Um, and at that point, there, you know, the, the rabbis were, were considered the teachers of the law. Um, and every rabbi would have a, an interpretation of the law. So what David was saying with the six, 613 laws, um, they would have interpretations and there would be like, um, depending on the interpretation, some would be heavy, that we call them heavy, or some would be called lighter. Uh, you know, when I talked about Jesus with the yoke, my burden is light. It, it speaks to that sense of heaviness and light, depending on the interpretation of the law. Um, but there were two people, two, uh, two main rabbis that held most of the teaching during this time. Uh, Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, and the other one was Rabbi Hillel. And if they were asked, what the greatest commandment was, they would answer with with the um, uh, with with the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then they would also say the second would be um, one of the rabbis would say uh, that the second commandment is to be holy, for I am holy, which is a command in Scripture that God says, um, and the other one would have said to love your neighbor as yourself, and so basically depending on how this person answered or how Jesus answered, it would place them in a certain camp with the rest of the rabbis. So which rabbi are you following? Not so much which, like what God are you following, but which rabbi or which interpretation are you following? So yeah, when Jesus was asked that, it was like a way of, of asking the same kind of thing. Who do you follow, essentially? Yeah. Anything else that came out from that? Yeah. The Samaritan did was not only did he, you know, save him from possibly just dying from exposure yeah. or anything like that. He also made space for him and cared for this person until they were well. Yeah. And I think sometimes when 
we might think of like helping people, it might be more of a short-term thing, but like if you have a friend and you know that they just lost their job and they're in some financial need, like I wonder if that's kind of like, as you are their neighbor, you can be there for them until they are well again, until right. they are well off again. So right. that just kind of stood out to me this time. He was like, I'll take care, I'll be back, but yeah. just take care of him and then I'll cover all the expenses. That commitment, for yeah. sure. That's really good. Cool. So I'm I'm gonna kind of walk through verse by verse what I felt like like was needed to be said today, but the 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 point of like coming to the scripture first like this and then hearing from every person as many people who would like to share is that God has something different for each person. Like when you read something like this, there's something for you that you'll get from the scripture that I might not be able to impart to you. And so it's so good to be able to talk through it together and kind of hear from each other what God is doing. So let's, uh, we're going to just go through it verse by, by verse. So verse uh, 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And so just as uh, um, Angela was saying, the expert in the law would be a lawyer. That's exactly what it is. Somebody who is who knows the law front and back. Um, and in that day and time, rabbis would teach in the synagogues or they would teach on a hillside and they wouldn't stand and teach. They would actually squat. So this is how they would teach. So they're teaching with people who are sitting there. It's eye contact. It's, it's right here with the people. So if somebody had a question, the respectful thing to do would be to stand up to make their presence known, to say the question, then just to come back down to that eye level as well. So this was a very important way of respect towards Jesus. He's not trying to bait and switch him. He's trying to understand um, because Jesus is a rabbi who's gaining a lot of popularity during this time. Uh, and then he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that was a very common question during that time. It wasn't like, I mean, he probably, he already knows the answer and Jesus answers the question with a question, which is a great teaching mode that Jesus uses most often, how he answers the question with a question. Um, but he goes on to say, so what do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And inherit means like to be included into something that's reserved for a family, right? It's to, it, a better word for inherit would be what must I do to receive eternal life? And the man is wondering what he has to do to receive it. How can he receive this gift of eternal life? Now, the Hebrew people, um, they didn't look at eternal life as, as like heaven. Or they didn't look at eternal life as like life after death. Um, they saw it as a way of living into God's purposes today. So oftentimes we Westerners will look at heaven and we'll look at hell. And a lot of it comes from... Um, Greek mythology and Dante's Inferno and all that sort of stuff. It's not necessarily biblical, uh, but we'll look at it as this sense of like this utopian place that we'll all go to after we're dead and there's streets of gold. And the Bible definitely hints of stuff like that. But when the Hebrew people would ask about eternal life, eternal life it wasn't so much life after death. It had to do with the start of immediacy, like happening right now. And the... Um, the Hebrew people divined eternal life, actually we may have a slide for that, as, a, as the fullness of life devoted to God. So eternal life just meant like the fullness of life, all of life that it's meant to be in devotion to God. 
that begins immediately and has no end date. It doesn't end. It just continues. So Jesus answers with a question, how do you read it? How, how do you understand what eternal life means? What do you see it as? And then he goes on and he says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so right there he is putting himself in the same camp as the rabbi, and I, I can't remember if it's Shammai or Hillel who says that one. I wish I, I knew that. Um, but he was basically saying, this is what it means. Now, uh, keep your finger there and flip over to Leviticus. Leviticus is um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. We'll be in Leviticus 18 for a minute here. Um, in this Bible, it's on 117. Eighteen verses four and five. So God says, and this is all within like this God's laws, but He says here, "You must obey my my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord," is what He says. So if this lawyer is an expert in the law, it makes sense that he would have known this passage. When Jesus says here, um, you know, what uh, he says that, oh, he says that you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. That portion of do this and you will live would have connected the lawyer to that part in Leviticus. He would just see that, okay, this is what life means. So the, the problem with a teaching like this, the difficult thing with a teaching like this is that this was something you could do, right? He's asking, what can I do to receive eternal life? And this is something that you can do in order to be a part of this fullness of, of life that's devoted to God. And if that something is to love God and to love your neighbor, then you would have to do it perfectly and you'd have to do it habitually in order to not lose out on, the, on that life, right? In order to not lose um, the, out on, on eternal life as it is. So if this guy who's saying, okay, this is what it means to follow God and to have eternal life is to love God and to love my neighbor. If this person is like on a camel and he's going on this like road somewhere and this guy with a brand new camel just like cuts him off and he's just like, he flips him the bird. Well, <laughs> does that mean he loses out on eternal life in that very moment? Like, that's a really scary concept to think of. If, if, if the only way to have eternal life is to obey the law of loving God and loving your neighbor, and if you're not loving your neighbor in the right way, is that it? Is that the end of it? So this very law that can bring him eternal life is the same law that can condemn him. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, the law wasn't put in place to bring salvation, right? It wasn't, it wasn't to make things so we can be saved. It was actually to point us to Jesus. The law was put in place to help remove Egypt or whatever is, is keeping you from the presence of God, whatever is taking the place or old ways of living to remove those things. It's to reposition the human heart towards the life-giving purposes of how God has created humanity to function how God has created humanity to live. And that's what the law is there in place for. So this pointing to Jesus is something that we Christians attempt to live out. 
We just, as best as we can, we want to point our lives over to Christ. There's a brilliant um, a French philosopher in the early 1900s named Simone Weil, and she said, um, I have a quote of it, it says, the, the tragedy of Christianity, do you have that, Paul? The tragedy of Christianity is that it came to see itself as replacing other religions instead of adding something to all of them. How can Christianity add anything in this ways of uh, understanding God and humanity? How can Christianity add anything to those things? C.S. Lewis was asked um, to explain in one word the difference between Christianity and other religious worldviews. And in one word to explain what it was. And the word that he used was grace. That is how. Grace through Jesus Christ, is what adds everything to all the other understandings of God through all the other religions. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards you. Grace is God for you. Grace is, is that God believes in you, loves you, has sacrificed himself for you. Grace is that God is for your neighbor, is rooting for your neighbor, that God believes in your neighbor, loves, desperately loves your neighbor. That is what grace is, and it adds everything. It is what our entire worldview is kind of sits on. So verse 29, we're in Luke 10. This guy, this lawyer, he said, so Jesus says, do this and you will live. And this guy wants to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, so who is my neighbor? What does this mean then for me is what he's saying. Like, if I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor and the only way I can inherit eternal life is if I do these things and I do them perfectly, tell me then, who is my neighbor? And he already knows who his neighbor is. It's not like he's confused on his neighbor. But he wants to be confirmed in his habitual love towards his neighbor. Am I doing it right? Do I have it correct? And for him, his neighbor, as a good Jew, would be other good Jews who lived nearby him. And this was a very biblical thing. This is not just like, oh, it makes me feel good because I'm just going to love the people that is, I'm closest to. This culture was incredibly tribal, but it's also biblical. So go back to Leviticus. Keep your finger in Luke 10. Leviticus 19. Um, it says in verse 33, oh, not 33, um, 1917. God says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will, so you will not share in their guilt. So what God is saying here and what this man understands is that neighbor equals Israelite. So to love my neighbor as myself means to love the person that is like me, that believes the same things as me, that acts the same way, looks the same way, behaves the same way. And I think that this is our issue today too, right? Like, we're, we're tribal people. It's part of who we are. It, it, it's like part of our nature to, to be with people who look, behave, act like us, most, the, those that we most identify with. I mean, you think of like social media. If somebody doesn't agree with you, then you delete them. Or if they don't, if they don't agree with you, then they delete you on it for not thinking like you, especially right now in our political place. I read a statistic just recently in my seminary class um, and they were saying that people who uh, convert to Christianity 
most likely within three to five years after like joining a church and being a part of a Christian group will actually lose and let go of their friends who do not believe like them. Like how is that for a Christian witness? If we become so internally focused on ourselves and not see our neighbor in need around us, how is that for our Christian witness in the world? Their friends become almost like mere shadows of the past as, as they, they are more involved in their church. And for those of you who grew up in the church, it's even harder to have good, meaningful, um, authentic friendships outside of the church. And the friendships that we have in the church are like, oh my gosh, you guys, I, it, it is vital for who we are as people that this is where we invest ourselves first. But out of that, we flow into the world. We don't keep here inwardly focused all the time because we lose out on what God is doing all around us. We miss out on that. And if you look at Jesus, he spent his time with his disciples, right? Like he was with his people, but he was always inviting other people into what he was doing. He would share meals with people that the religious society would deem unworthy and unfit to be meal, like eating meals with table fellowship. He wasn't committed to a tribe, but he was committed to humans oftentimes humans who were hurting. So go back to Leviticus again. Thanks, you guys. Uh, we're going to be in verse 33, 1933. And this is kind of where Jesus, where Jesus uh, put his time. It says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born, Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's Jesus' worldview there. Let's go to verse 30 in uh, Luke 10. The guy says, who's my neighbor? So Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Paul, do we have a picture of that road there? I don't know if Jason got it up. So that's a modern day picture of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's like a 600 foot elevation level drop. Um, it was really treacherous. It was actually nicknamed the road of blood because people would have to get, uh, they'd have to travel in groups or they would have to have like hired security um, and protectors along the way just to make sure that they arrived to their place safely. Um, and people would get attacked all the time on that place. So, and it, and it would have held a lot of meeting. For those that are listening, they'd be like, okay, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I know what that's like. So what, where's this story going to go? Um, so we'll keep on going. It says, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. We'll stop there for a second again. <laughs> I think Jesus is adding these specifics to the story where the robbers stripped him of his clothes and beat him unconscious because in a tribal culture where one was assessed by clothing and facial recognition and accents, anyone who was passing this man could not determine whether this man was worth saving or worth helping. Is this a fellow Israelite? I have no idea. I can't tell. I don't know if this is somebody that I, can, that I am required to help by the law. I don't know if this is my neighbor. So maybe the Samaritan, well, let's keep reading. 
It goes here. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So a priest would be somebody who, it's pretty self-explanatory, a Levite would be somebody who's like a priestly assistant, essentially. Um, Both ceremonially clean, important people. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So I can imagine this road. I mean, it's not like, it's not wide. It's not like you can't see out or anything, but kind of like the way that I see the scripture sometimes is like, maybe the Samaritan is just traveling right behind these two guys. And he can see that the two guys who are in suits and definitely like look like they know, they know things. They look like they're educated, probably smarter and wiser and all those sorts of things are traveling ahead. And he sees that guy in the road and they pass by and he's like, oh, hey, they must know something about this guy that I can't tell. Maybe they know something that I just can't quite see. Maybe the dying man had like some sort of disease that he could get. Or maybe he was super aggressive, you know, like if, if you hit an opossum with your car, you're not supposed to touch the opossum because it could attack you. Good, good information, you guys. Don't, don't, don't touch the possums. Okay. So maybe this guy could be aggressive or something like that. Maybe this man is associated with some sort of terrorist organization of robbers. Maybe the dying man was bait, right? Like, if somebody stops to help this man, maybe somebody will come out through the, around the corner and, and attack this guy too. There were a million valid and important things that could have caused this Samaritan to pass by and to turn a blind eye, but he didn't. And he responded without thinking, it seems. He, he responded without thinking beyond what could happen, all the what-ifs that could go through somebody's mind when they see something really kind of horrible like that. And some may think that that was stupid or foolish, but I think he responded out of a gut reaction because of who he was. So um, I was coming off of HSU, uh, it was a few weeks ago, and I was walking over that overpass, the little walking pass that goes in Northtown by the coffee shop. Do you guys know who Big Al is? Yeah, most people know who Big Al is. He's, he's this guy who always sits on the corner by Northtown Coffee, and he has a sign that just says, have a nice day, and a little smiley face, and he sits there all day long. So I'm walking down, and I could hear somebody yelling and shouting, like, like really angry, like a really horrible, ang- angry yell. And it's kind of a trigger for me because of just some childhood stuff that I went through. But this, I could see as I came across the corner, I could see this like late middle-aged man yelling in Big Al's face, and he kept saying what a piece of junk this guy was and that he needs to get a job and he's, not, he's worth nothing, just like yelling and screaming in his face. And the way that I responded was like, I saw it and I was just like, hey, hey, you stop. Like I was just so, 
I just went into it and I'm not a big person by any means. I'm not intimidating at all, but I like started running towards Big Al, like I'm ready to help. Um, <laughs> and the guy started walking away. But it was, just a, it was just a gut reaction. I saw a need and I responded immediately because I didn't know, I, I didn't think about it. And some people will be like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You gotta, you gotta assess the situation first. If you become a first responder, they always say like, assess the situation before you step into the trauma because you could get electrocuted. It was just a gut reaction and I think a lot of people have that, especially when we're that connected, when we're connected with the Lord and we're just, we can see a need and we respond. But being a neighbor, according to Jesus, according to this passage of scripture, is to show love to a person in need, regardless of what you do know about that person or what you don't know about that person. It means that we bestow kindness, mercy, justice, compassion, without knowing anything about who that person is in need, what they might do with your kindness, in the future, what they might not do with your kindness in the future, how they might take advantage of you, or it's an amazing situation. We have no idea what will happen. Loving our neighbor is not based upon our own protection. It's not to receive anything from the goodness of our heart. Like, look, I stood up for you, so what am I going to get? God's love for the other person, for, for our neighbor is to flow through us without abandon according to Jesus and according to how Jesus showed love for us on the cross. It's the same sort of self-sacrificial cross-like love. The Catholic faith, faith, when you start confirmation, they do this ritual with the person who's starting the confirmation process and the priest crosses the person's eyes with the, with the form of a cross over both eyes over both ears, over your mouth, over your hands, over your feet, to show that you are a person of the cross. That everything you do, everything you say, how you speak, how you listen, is through cross-like love. So last thought before we go into our time of response. The neighbor was a Samaritan person, we read. And there's some history about um, what the Samaritans were like, how Israel would have responded to a Samaritan person. Um, in 1606 BC, the Babylonians captured a kingdom in Israel. Israel was split into a northern and southern kingdom. Um, and during that time, they were in captivity for 70 years. And while they were in exile, a lot of the Jewish people started to intermarry with the Babylonians. So those aren't pure Jewish people. All of a sudden you have a bunch of like mudbloods hanging around. If anybody knows what that means, they called them half-breeds, but you know, a little Harry Potter shout out. Um, and and they, they held, that they were in captivity for 70 years. They intermarried, they had children that were half Jewish and half Gentile. And then when the more, um, when they were let out of exile and, and the, the Jews that didn't intermarry and the Jews that were not a part of the exile in the first place come around, there's this serious thing that happens that disconnected them from each other. So the, the half-breed Samaritans, they would later teach that Israel's teachers were um, leading Israel astray, that they were uh, not doing the right things. They took the Torah really seriously 
but they believe that the rest of the Hebrew Bible was corrupt and was false. Um, Israel's place of worship was Jerusalem, and Samaria's place of worship was Mount Gerizim, but both believed that they were correct, and the other was false. They believed it 100%. There was no question in their mind that both sides were unworthy of anything. So what I love about Jesus is that he describes the neighbor as the one who is living closest to, the God, to God's ways, even though everyone knew that the neighbor worshipped God differently. The devout Jew would say that that neighbor even worshipped a completely different God, not even Yahweh. <coughs> So perhaps what Jesus was getting at is that we have a lot to learn from our neighbors. That our neighbors are the ones who can show us who God is, even more fuller. Perhaps like Simone Weil, the the quote that we read, we have a lot to offer each other for God's glory and greater truth to grow out of it. Perhaps when we love our neighbors and we become a neighbor, we actually live into this eternal life that Jesus talks about because following Jesus it reaches well beyond tribal lines and and comfortable walls and what makes sense to me it reaches beyond that all the time and it means that it's not the most comfortable way of living but it's the way that God created us to live so verses 36 and 37 Jesus says which of these three men, or which of these three, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. We're going to go into our time of response, which we get to do every week, where we, um, where we pray a confession with each other to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and the ways that we get to live into that week after week, the ways that we fall short and Jesus is just like, nope, you got this, we're gonna do it again. Uh, We take communion every week as a way of remembering um, Christ's death and his resurrection, how he's calling us into a place of new life and to extend that new life to other people. Uh, We have generosity boxes, Uh, we don't pass a plate, so if this is your home, we encourage you to Continue to be prayerful about giving and what that looks like in your own life. And that generosity is just a place that we practice here, and it goes on beyond this place. Um, But we are starting Lent on Wednesday. And I think a lot of you already knew that, but this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. So uh, it is the day that starts Lent. It is the day that we receive these ashes that remind us how frail life is, how, um, how fast it goes. And that God is with us every step of the way and like brings us into this place of new life. So Lent is, is kind of this, this sense of stripping away, of letting go, of, of um, tearing down our ideas of, of who we are that's not the ways of the Lord. And then it brings us into this place of celebration for Easter Sunday. So we are going to do this together as Lent. We're going to be practicing um, some spiritual disciplines and, you know, with like meditation and contemplation, prayer, um, 
and uh, and every day we are inviting you guys to pray the Lord, not the Lord's Prayer, pray uh, the Beatitudes together. So at noon, uh, we're just going to be praying together, wherever you're at. So you can pray it through your whole lunch break. You can pray it just one time through. Um, I encourage you to put it in your phones to remind you at noon. Uh, my phone says, pray through lunch. It popped up at 12 o'clock every time. Um, and... It, yeah, so we can be in solidarity with that because the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. All of those things that reminds us of loving our neighbor, of what we're called to do as a people of God. And so we're going to do that together throughout Lent. And the reason that we're doing this is not to become more holy and disengaged people, you guys. It's not to become like, well, we just need to get more centered and become more holy and know the God, know God's law better, like like this expert needed to know. It's actually to become more holy, I suppose, absolutely holy, but more re-engaged people. To actually have eyes to see our neighbors around us, the hurt that's around us, that we respond without thinking of ourselves first, but through looking through that cross. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, journey together, live different, and provoke change.